Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Today we are joined by Professor Lisa Delpinarati, who has been a professor of sport, event, and tourism management at the George Washington University School of Business for 30 years. Lisa directs the BBA, MBA, and MS in sport management programs at GW. She also oversees the GW Sport Philanthropy and Youth Sports Administrator Professional Certificates. Recognized as an Olympic scholar, she has attended 19 consecutive Olympic Games and five World Cups as a volunteer, researcher, and consultant. She also teaches for the International Olympic Committee's Executive Masters in Management of Sports Organizations, that's the MEMOS program, and serves on the executive board of the Women in Sports and Events, the WISE DC chapter. Lisa co-authored The Ultimate Guide to Sport Marketing and founded the Sports Industry Networking and Career Conference. Her areas of expertise include mega events, sponsorship, entrepreneurship, sport tourism, youth sports, esports, and economic impact. Lisa, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. 19 consecutive Olympic Games, that's pretty impressive. We'd love to hear a little bit more about the games that you've, uh, you have attended. And also, from your perspective, what makes for a successful Olympiad, if you will, although I know the term Olympiad covers that entire time period, but I just wanted to sound fancy there. But basically, what, what makes for good games, um, if, if you had to point at some of the events that were, were organized as examples of how to properly do this, uh, which ones w- would you point to? Well, that's a good question, but it really depends on who you are, who is your client group that you're talking about. Uh, we have athletes, and for them, the most important part is to make sure that their field of play is the best possible, as well as their living conditions and the environment in which they're competing. Uh, for the spectator, it depends on how accessible tickets are, what's the fanfare, how lively the in- environment inside the stadium, how easy it is to get in and out of the venues. Uh, if you're a sponsor, it's, you know, how, how large of audience they have, both on television and in person, uh, how well their activations are doing on site. Uh, so there's multiple different stakeholders, and each one has a, a different uh, perception of successful. 
So Lisa, from and then from a host country perspective, uh, can you comment on that? What makes an Olympic successful for a host country? Right. For a host country, you know, they're looking at uh, brand building. You know, are people seeing these games and saying, wow, I, I can't wait to go to Sydney, Australia or to Sochi, Russia or to, you know, Japan uh, because of the games. Uh, they're also looking at the economic impact and the economic impact for an Olympic Games does not just happen during those 16 days. There are many people who have to travel starting, you know, seven years out and there's a continual flow of business people and those involved in organizing the games coming in and out of that host country. So, you know, Japan did reap many benefits leading up to when they had to cancel or postpone the 2020 games. And now they're hoping that they're going to be able to actually host the games and receive the fruits of all their labor. So they are, you know, looking at both media exposure as well as economic impact. And also it's the long term, as we call horizon legacies. So they're hoping that now with these venues, they're going to be able to host other major events in those venues and to also let their citizens participate and utilize those venues. And certainly Japan has gone through a lot of infrastructure improvements uh, that they're hoping to hoping to cash in on, right? I mean, you, you spend the time building up your venues, uh, updating the venues, building new venues, and then uh, the prospect of not having anyone come to offset all of all of those, you know, the, their tourism industry, all the new hotels that have been built, that those, all of those relationships that were were built with the idea that there would be a, you know, like you said, a 16 day payoff initially, and then and then all those legacy events afterwards. So certainly, I, I feel as I've been reading the news, and we'll talk more about about Japan later, I think, but um, I, I do my my heart kind of hurts for a country that uh, you know where you, you get geared up to host the Olympics and then. And then something happens and the question is, can it, can it remain or can it not? No, I think in Tokyo, you know, what is going to be changing is that there will not be as many, you know, celebrations outside of the Olympic venues themselves. Initially, they had to, they were going to hold um, Olympic experiences where, you know, Jumbotron TVs and everybody could gather and cheer on, even if cheer on the teams, even though you're not inside the venues. So there's going to be less what we call activation for spectators, uh, less hospitality. Uh, you know, they're, the people who are coming over, they really want them to go to the event and go home uh, for everybody to stay as safe as possible. Lisa, as a, as a soccer fan, I, I have to ask, other than the different scale in terms of how many countries are, are represented, what differences, if any, do you see between World Cups and Olympics from your point of view? I mean, are there any meaningful differences in terms of what we've been talking about? Or more or less, would you say the, the events are very similar in, in character? From a management perspective, the World Cup is extremely easy. Uh, you have basically one big event per day in a city. Unlike the Olympic Games, you have 30 events happening at all through the hours, many overlapping. So the combination of trying to figure out the flow of, of spectators coming in and out, getting the athletes 
to practices, getting them to their venues on time, getting them fed, uh, the logistics around a multi-sport event like the Olympic Games is far greater than that of a World Cup where a city is managing and looking over, you know, one, maybe two, three venues in a city. Now, Qatar is going to be different because you can drive an hour and a half from one end of Qatar to another, and you're going to now have, you know, I think seven stadiums in that small space. So you're going to have multiple World Cup matches happening uh, in a small area. And so that will more replicate the Olympic model than other host World Cup host cities in the past. Since you brought up the next World Cup and without going into some of the thornier issues that are coming up with regards to that event, but looking at this particular issue that you brought up, the fact that you're talking about a, about a very small country, uh, obviously a very wealthy country that does have the financial ability to um, undertake an event like this, but still you have probably at some level, there, there's going to be issues involving how these venues can be used afterwards, right? This is not a country that has a a major national league, for example, that can that can really make use of that. Uh, but also looking at it from that perspective, the fact that you're you're condensing what is typically an experience that includes a large country, many cities. Um, do you think there's something there that maybe should be taken into account when it comes time to awarding uh, events to to countries and Without wanting to discriminate against the smaller countries, could we at least perhaps entertain the thought that it might make sense to get a group of of smaller countries involved when it comes to this, rather than opting for this model that, at at first glance at least, seems to be somewhat ineffective in terms of of making making the most out of out of resources. Right, Qatar is going to have a, a huge challenge on how to fill those stadiums afterwards. Uh, They have plans, but we all know uh, the population is just not there to utilize such large venues um, so close together. You know, Greece had a hard time afterwards. The the biggest legacy that Athens has as an Olympic uh, host, I believe, is that their metro system uh, was built and improved uh, before they had terrible congestion, and now they have a new metro system that was um, fast-forwarded due to the Olympic Games. The venues are not being used, but the transportation t- tremendously benefited the the host city. So, um, you know, every host city gets something out of hosting. Cutter uh, will, you know, they're looking at it as you know, sport diplomacy. Uh, raising a profile, trying to bring in more tourists. But in the end, I think they already have tremendous sports facilities over there that are underutilized. Uh, And so just how their plans on trying to have everybody use them is is still in the works. Uh, Unfortunately, I was recommending that you have temporary ones where you can really reduce the size or even just get rid of the stadium altogether. Uh, because the expense of upkeeping is is really what's going to hurt them in the in the future. And am I mistaken, Lisa, in thinking that there have been Olympic Games in the past that have been spread across more than one country, or has it always been limited to a single host country? 
it's always been limited to a single host country. I mean, in 1956, they had to have equestrian outside of Australia because of the, there was a disease going around in horses. But there, it's always in one city. Uh, World Cup has been hosted in two countries, uh, Korea and Japan. But other than that, always these mega events have been held in, in one country. So it's hard to talk about international sports and not talk about scandals that tend to plague these uh, sports or these uh, these different industries from time to time. So let's focus on uh, on doping allegations. I'm always it's just the I don't know always fascinated by Russia. Okay, so Russia's systemic doping programs from. I can't remember which Olympics it was. You'll be able to fill this in for me. Um, I'm just kind of curious. Can we can we ever really believe that a, a games or a you know a mega sporting event is pulled off without any kind of cheating? Is is everybody tainted to some degree? Or I mean, because you know you think about the the world of cycling and and you know one athlete's taking some kind of uh, some kind of medication that helps increase their uh, you know safely increase their their heart rate capacity. I mean. The, there's all kinds of, uh, I feel like all kinds of gray lines across everywhere when we're talking about what medications can be considered legal and illegal and what kind of, you know, someone's doping and someone's not. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the world of the world of uh, professional athletes and, uh, and those scandals that tend to, to come up from time to time? There's a, a few things that go into doping in sports. Uh, one is that, you know, the pressure to continue to improve and and win you know there's more money involved um so there's a lot of, of pressure there's prestige i mean russia had that they're the host and all hosts always want to win more medals so they almost do anything possible to win and if that means you know going to far reaches of ways to cheat uh with doping uh that's what they did in order to win the medals and, and show that they're the best country ever um, in, in sports. And then it comes to, so that there's the competition that, you know, pushes everybody to succeed. You know, we always laugh that the Olympic motto is swifter, higher, stronger, Altius, Fortius. You know, is that the best motto to have? Because it really does then say, okay, how are you going to get there? Does the means any way you get there is fine. <laughs> so that's one thing. The other one is we call it the, the fox guarding the hen house. Uh, many sports representatives are the ones that are on like WADA and those organizations that are um, trying to catch people cheating. So if you have those with a stake in the sport, do they have an invested interest in catching those people cheating? Because uh, it, you know, looks bad for their sport, right? Uh, and you know, third is medical advancements are faster than the people trying to catch them, and so there's more money being invested in trying to cheat the system and trying to invent new ways to cheat than the the money into enforcement and um, detection. So, you know, there's incentives to cheat. It's hard to catch, you know, and stay on top of the advancements in cheating. And then those that are trying to catch them may not be the right people in place. So there are new 
organizations that are independent now of sports. Uh, Athletics has a new independent body, and they feel that that's going to really help. It reminds me of uh, kind of our general practice of law, right? I mean, you're talking to a couple of lawyers here, and uh, that's always the pace of business always outpaces the pace of laws to regulate the business. And so it's a common refrain in in all the industries we work in is that, you know, developments happen in the business, uh, people run with it, and then uh, then the regulators pick it up and say, well, maybe there's an issue here, maybe there's not. And so it it does tend to to go ahead of that several years. So I'm curious then, this is a, I don't know if it's a a moral question or a moral uh, calculation for you. Do you think that with a country like Russia, that temporary honor of, of winning uh, a great number of medals being the top of, uh, you know, top of the podium, is that, does that outweigh the scandal that, that came later? Do you think that Russia was tarnished more um, by having risen up so high and then fallen versus not having uh, achieved any, uh, what they might consider greatness at the games? You know, this is a complicated discussion because with Russia, there was many things going on in terms of Sochi, where it was positioned. Some people believe that the Sochi Winter Olympic Games were a decoy for their quickly soon after invasion into their neighbors that it was an opportunity to have military forces into that region of the country. I am not an expert in Russia politics or warfare. Um, so this is just what I've heard. There could be other reasons for the buildup of Sochi um, and hosting the Olympic Games because it was very ironic how within two weeks of all the fanfare. And I can tell you, being one of them over there, the media was so skeptical at first. By the end of the Olympic Games, those games were great. Uh, I really felt everything ran smoothly from a spectator perspective. They were fun. They always had music going. It was, you know, beautiful. And and everybody's opinion was, wow, this is great. And then two weeks later, boom, they started the war um, with their neighbors. So, you know, they got a lot of buzz for a while. And I'm not sure, you know, what people, you know, thinking. Um, But for them, it was a success. Yeah, it's interesting. I know one or two, at least one. There might might be more than one person who, who actually went to the World Cup in Russia and they they had very good things to say about the experience when you were when you were talking about that aspect of of the games in uh, at Sochi. It, it reminded me of that. Um, I remember prior to the World Cup, I wondered, you know, because frankly, when people go to Russia regularly, you know, for, for, for during during regular times, you know, experiences are mixed. Let, let's just say so. It was actually kind of surprising. Everything I heard from journalists, from fans, from friends of mine who actually went to the World Cup was was very positive. So so clearly when they want to, they can they can put on a put on a good show. My experience with World Cup in Russia was also tremendous. Um, my my students and I, you know, we had a, a enjoyable time. It was a beautiful country. And, you know, we always had to remind the students, is what they're seeing reality? And you know, it's easy to put on a show for a month 
without knowing what's going on behind closed doors uh, or behind the scenes. So, but from a spectator's perspective, everything was, was perfect and it ran very well. They even managed to make sure the Americans wouldn't be there uh, competing. The Russians had a perfect, uh, perfect World Cup as far as they were concerned. Uh, hmm, now I wonder, you know, how, mu- how much uh, of a role did they play in uh, the refereeing in those uh, games in our region? No, I'm just, just, just kidding. Maybe not. Um, let's um, kind of take a, a, a step back and, and, and also look slightly in a different direction. Uh, let's turn to the topic of, of sport marketing. As, as Jonathan mentioned in the intro, you wrote a book on the subject. So let's, let's just consider some, some basic questions. What, what, what exactly is it? Uh, what exactly is sport, sports marketing? I'm sure that like, any, like everything else, there's what people might think at first glance uh, that, it, that it involves might be a little bit different in, in, in practice. For people out there who might be interested in this as, a, as an industry or, or, or a career uh, what are some of the opportunities that are out there for, for people who might want to work in, in sports marketing? There's two definitions of sports marketing. So there's the marketing of the athletes, the teams, the leagues, the competitions, the venues. Uh, and then there's marketing through sport. So there's marketing of Nike through athletes. There is marketing of, you know, Bose headsets through the NFL. And so there's really two paths you can go of, you know, actually marketing and selling tickets or selling sponsorships, or you could be on the brand side of where you're utilizing the sport property to market your product. So how many more hamburgers can you sell through a sponsorship of the the Washington Capitals? Um, You know, how many more shoes can you buy by endorsing Michael Jordan? Um, You know, these are the type of things, two different paths that you can get careers in. And so now sports marketing is heavily reliant on social media. Becoming a a content specialist, can you uh, create good content, including graphics, make it engaging, make it fun, um, making it... um, worthy of people to come and follow your content uh, because it's all about revenue. You know, I start my classes, how do you spell sport? And it's, you know, M-O-N-E-Y because without money, you can't pay the players. So, you know, how we talk in class about sports marketing, how are you generating that revenue? And again, it's through tickets, sponsorship, broadcast rights. How are you getting more people to watch? Now, with TV ratings going down, that doesn't really provide a clear picture because we know Gen Z, they're not watching linear TV. They're watching on you know streaming. They're watching more highlights. So we need to study and focus on how to best calculate and measure the true fan base that sports has. We do know Gen Z, in surveys, they say they're less likely to be super fans, uh, avid fans, uh, because they have so many different things that they're interested in. So all the studies indicate that Gen Z are less avid fans and that they're consuming completely different than any generation before them. 
So the real challenge for sports executives right now is to how to, you know, reach and engage those younger people to ensure that we have a strong fan base continuing on. I know from my son, like he won't sit and watch a, a full length, you know, the entire game. Even if he is sitting, he's doing something else on his phone. So trying to capture and knowing their habits of dual screens or three screens at once is important, but we need to still count them for our sponsors because, you know, otherwise you just say, oh, TV ratings are down, but that's not really the true picture. And in fact, um, Disney just spent 20, about 25% more on their rights for the NFL. So obviously they understand it's a lot more than just linear TV rights or TV um, ratings that should be counted. So Lisa, where are the lawyers in all of this? Every industry has lawyers involved and certainly the, the world of, uh, of sports marketing, uh, you know, agents, contracts, there have to be lawyers everywhere, maybe probably more than people want, which is typically the case. So if there are any listeners who happen to be lawyers, who happen to be very interested in, in the world of sports marketing, where can they fit in when they want to be engaged with this industry? One of the major challenges right now is over IP. So you have so many different platforms that people can consume sport. Who has those rights? And even on social media, you know, an athlete posts something, is that their rights? You know, how can they commercialize uh, around whatever they're posting if it's on somebody else's platform? You know, just even thinking of splicing and dicing media rights now over so many different platforms. So a lot of attorneys are in there understanding, you know, IP and who, who gets what in these contracts. Uh, there's also sports betting is big uh, and has a lot of attorneys looking at that, uh, not only from the perception of the legislation that's happening in different states, but then in, you know, vetting and ensuring the integrity of betting in different states. Um, you know, sponsorship contracts are getting more and more complicated. There's always going to be standardized language, but brands um, that are entering the sponsorship, they all have in-house counsel or use outhouse counsel to, to look at um, contracts. Uh, you know, the Olympic contract is 600 pages long. So there's a lot of people looking at those contracts, you know, and, and with, with COVID and with everything else, there's more and more uh, clauses that are adding to these, these contracts. The other thing is sport nonprofits. There's many organizations using sport for social good. And that's another whole area that lawyers are involved with is setting up these nonprofits or making sure that they're following proper procedures. And I think just in the last year, uh, didn't, uh, wouldn't the court rule that the NCAA athletes now can uh, derive income from their images, the use of their images, which they hadn't been able to do before? Yes, that's a burgeoning area. However, it hasn't gone into effect yet on a national level. The NCAA postponed their vote 
California, Florida, there's a few states where that legislation is supposed to go into effect in July. NCAA is still concerned because you don't want two states to allow athletes to have the right to convert, you know, to benefit on their commercial entity name, image, and likeness because for recruiting purposes, you know, if those athletes, they're going to go to schools in California or go to schools in Florida, if they feel like they can prosper financially more so than going to say Penn state where that legislation hasn't been enacted yet. So the NCAA is trying to do a umbrella amendment saying that athletes can benefit from name image likeness, but there's a situation with the Department of Justice that says um, there's an antitrust issue with it. So there's a whole area of law around name, image, and likeness. And even if all schools go with, you know, athletes allowed name, image, likeness, they can um, carve out certain um, categories like cannabis. Do, do they want all their athletes going around and marketing cannabis? Do they want all their athletes going around marketing alcohol or cigarettes or some other products that are not representative of the university if that athlete is representing the university as well as themselves? Um, another issue is what happens if the school has a major contract with Nike, can that athlete go and sign with Adidas? And then there's a conflict of interest there. So there's a whole number of issues around name, image, and likeness legislation. So let's turn now to COVID because we know that COVID certainly has affected everyone. Um, but how has it uh, been dealt with in, in the world of sports? Are, are there certain sports industries that have done a better job in preserving their fan base and, and connecting with them um, than others, even, even with the truncated seasons that we've seen lately? There are certain sports that are more impacted than others. For example, you know, MLS, uh, they depend heavily on ticket sales for revenue. So without having fans in the stands, their revenue base is, is completely um, dissolved. Whereas the NFL depends more heavily on television. And so for, for them, the NFL hasn't been hit that hard and they were able to figure out a way to continue to play. But if they hadn't been able to figure out a way to play, um, they would be in dire straits right now. And it's the same thing with the NBA. They knew they had to go in a bubble and play um, a certain number of games because in the contract, it said that if they didn't play X number of games, then the broadcast money could be returned. So I, you know, when Black Lives Matter happened and they started boycotting games, the NBA was like, oh my gosh, we've got to make somehow to make up those games because they had, were just making the minimum number of broadcast games. It's been really interesting to see how the different leagues have, have adapted. When I first heard that the European leagues, at least, right, they were they were looking at playing games without a live audience. At first, you know, I was very skeptical because I always associate empty stadiums with penalties that are imposed on teams, right, for fan violence or whatever. And, uh, you know, these games are, there's usually that negative coverage that, that accompanies the games and really tends to detract from what happens on the, on the field. But in practice, it's been 
the experience has been uh, better than I than I expected. Although I have to I have to say I think the the fact some of the broadcasters are piping in fake crowd sounds and the fact that they're creating these visual effects so that it so that it looks as if the stadium is full I do think it has a an impact at first I was I was skeptical and thought it would be better not to have that but there have been a couple of games that I've watched where they didn't have any of that and um, in some cases the, the audio wasn't good enough so that you were getting too much of the audio from the field and the sidelines which I would have thought before all this started that it would be it would be a good thing to be hearing what players are saying and what the coaches are screaming at them not quite there's been a lot of things that that I've discovered that have surprised me but but overall you know at least as far as the European leagues go I'm glad that they are pushing through and I'm glad that they figured out a a happy medium you know I certainly have benefited from (laughs) from their games as a way of keeping sane during during the pandemic I actually had the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl and so I took students down and we volunteered, but I was, we were actually inside the, the stadium during game day. And, you know, the way that they had, you know, I think it was 30,000 people paid $100 to have their face blown up and put on a lollipop stick um, and put in all the seats. And it really did add to the atmosphere. Um, just, you know, on TV, I know people said, oh, my gosh, it was packed. I'm like, no, <laughs> 30,000 of those people were fake. And, you know, I, as I said, people were following the COVID rules for the first half of the game. I think as alcohol started streaming more, or, you know, more people were taking in alcohol, coupled with the fact that they knew that their home team was going to win. Uh, they kind of forgot about COVID for a little bit. And so all the protocols went out of the window for the second half a little bit. Well, I'm sitting in Florida right now, and I can tell you that COVID awareness isn't great even when the alcohol is flowing. So yeah, I can I can see how, <laughs> you know, I can see how things, um, how some of the discipline withered away, right, as the, as the game went on. And sure enough, as you know, it, it, it was an interesting situation, right, to have the hometown team playing right uh i guess it made it particularly challenging for for the uh, organizers and moving forward it really depends on the municipality which which the team is in because here in the washington dc area we're very strict uh, about not letting anybody go anywhere um and so it's going to be more difficult for say dc united to have fans come in than say florida right and, but, but however, even though on paper, when you ask people a survey, they're like, yeah, I'll go back to the stadium. Uh, many teams that have opened their stadiums for fans to come back have had trouble selling tickets. And, um, you know, some people said, well, maybe it's the way it's configured because they usually can only do like two or four tickets at a time. You, you know, you just can't go up and buy five or go up and buy eight tickets uh, because they've had to set it out in the stadium a certain way. Uh, Others say that maybe it's just not worth the hassle of having to wear a mask the whole time and follow different procedures. Um, But, you know, I think for the most part, people are like, you know, I'll pass. I can watch it at home. Uh, The question is, when this does come to an end or people feel more comfortable having the vaccine, Will they come back? I am still bullish that they will. People 
like people, uh, the majority, <laughs> and they they are going to want to go back to their fandom and cheer with other people uh, versus staying at home. And it's just not the same experience. And I think there will be a, a certain pent up desire to to go and, and experience sporting events in person, just like with a lot of other things, right? I mean, if you talk to people, some people miss going to the movies, some people miss going to church, some people miss travel. And I think that I would imagine that that there would be there will be some sort of of, of spike, right? As, as people are able to, to go do it. I mean, I know I, for one, certainly have that feeling of wanting to, to, to go back when it, when it's safe. I, I, I figured, you know, as, as you look back at the last year and all of the things that you thought you would do and you didn't do, I mean, that, that's certainly on, on, on my own list, that experience of going to the game and then just, just being there and experiencing, experiencing it live. Speaking of that, I'm going to have to um, check myself here because there are many, many things that I, that I would want to talk about. It's obviously a topic that's dear to my heart, but let's focus on one issue. We've already touched on this a little bit, but let, let's hone in a little bit on, on, on Tokyo um, and, and the Olympics. What's going to happen? You, you, you already told us a little bit about what's going to happen in terms of things that they're not going to be doing, things that they're going to have to modify. But overall, you know, what's going to be the resulting product, if you will? The IOC has issued these playbooks for each of these different client groups. And you know, there's always going to be disappointment no matter what you do during the COVID time, but they're trying to make it the best possible. And remember, the Olympics are normally a made-for-TV event. And you know, there's 100,000 spectators, um, 80% of which are locals anyway, nationals uh, of the host country. Many people think there's more internationals, but 80% of tickets sold are always to the host country. So right now, the, the plan is that athletes would come in. The quarantine time has yet to be determined, but they would need to take tests before, come in, take tests, be quarantined outside of the Olympic Village, so we hear, uh, for a short time, and then come into the Olympic Village five days before their competition. And then they would need to leave the Olympic Village 48 hours afterwards. So what that means that many athletes won't be there for opening ceremony. They cannot stay and just keep partying for the whole two weeks after they get done. Um, so, you know, it's not going to be the same experience, but they're going to be able to compete. And for the majority of athletes, that's what they're there for. They're there to show their, you know, excellence at the games. And um, in terms of the spectators, they will have limited fans. The majority will be from Japan. I think each National Olympic Committee will be able to perhaps um, bring some of their highest donors. That's what I'm thinking, uh, as well as you know their sponsors and some family and friends of athletes. I think they're going to discourage as many just Olympic fans that have no connection to stay home and watch it on TV. Um, so that's what is happening. I'm right now, Japan, if you want to go to Japan, you can go to Japan, you can travel there. So I'm not sure if they're going to put in any restrictions 
leading up to the games that will make it more difficult for somebody just to enter Japan. As I said before, the sponsors, all their activations have really minimized, if not completely um, ceased, because the you know corporations, big corporations, have you know their staff are not back yet in offices. They have very strict policies on traveling. So if the executives of these big camp corporations cannot go to the games. It doesn't look like they're going to be hosting many people. Maybe they'll have some local domestic type of activities, but even then, the challenge of doing it in a safe way is is always an issue. So, Lisa, let's talk for a minute about the world of sports. This is a an even farther, uh, you know, thirty thousand foot view of of what's happening uh, within the United States, and maybe this is happening around the world as well. But I remember a time in the past when I was your student, um, you discussed that the U.S. was becoming a one-sport environment for children and teenagers who wanted to become professional athletes. So, Can you talk a little more about what that means, uh, what it means for kind of their, their training regimes, and whether you think it's good for the world of sports that we are forcing kids into these one-track sports um, when they, they might be good at two sports and maybe it's better for their, them physically to be cross-training rather than just doing one sport at a time? Right. Similar to what I said about why people start doping, right, is there's such high intensity on winning and being competitive and getting that high, you know, college scholarship that, you know, kids are starting younger and we've professionalized youth sports. We've made it so that, you know, it used to be all run by volunteers. Now, by the time kids are in you know, fourth grade, you know, they, they're anywhere between 10 and 12 years old, they start getting on these travel teams that they have paid coaches. And then uh, once you get on a travel team, those coaches, if they're paid, they don't want you to miss, they want you to play soccer, fall, winter, and, you know, spring. They don't want you to go off and play lacrosse in spring. They don't want you to go off and play baseball. They want you to stay with them, keep paying them. And, you know, the parents get convinced into this whole system as well. It's like, oh, yeah, my son has to play or son or daughter has to play this sport year round in order to get that college scholarship. In fact, you know, many times there's there's studies out there that show a multi-sport athlete ends up being better prepared, less injuries. They're using different muscle sets, they're using different body parts. And so they're still active, they're still doing high eye hand coordination, they're still, you know, learning defense, offense, but it's not as taxing on the individual, uh, the body. Uh, you know, we've seen the statistics about these young kids and getting the Tommy John surgery just, you know, even before high school, just because they're so worn out of, you know, throwing pitches. Uh, overuse injuries. Um, this is what happens in specialization. So there's many people now trying to do like um, different campaigns that says don't retire kids. I'm not sure if you saw the Dick's Sporting Good ads and um, Aspen Institute and ESPN, they all came together that said, you know, don't retire kid because we have so many uh, youth that are burned out. By the time they get to high school, they're like, I don't like this anymore. It's no fun. I'm, you know, my coach is yelling at me all the time. 
I'm having to travel every weekend. You know, I can't be a kid. I just can't go play. I'm like this professional at this youth level that doesn't really make a difference in the end, except for the very few that get college scholarships. And the fact is, those college scholarships in swimming and baseball and tennis are so few and they're not full rides. And parents are often spending more on paying those coaches and spending hotel room nights and all of that, um, that it doesn't even equal out in, in the end. And so how does this specialization compare to what happens in countries uh, where, say, the government is more involved in handpicking those athletes from early ages and putting them into, uh, you know, into schools or specialized uh, training regimens for that particular sport so that they can, for instance, become the number one, uh, you know, World Cup, World Cup dominating team. Yeah, that's not where we are. It's more the parents. I see that it's usually parents that get their children involved in a sport and then they get sold on continuing down a path and you know they convince you that your son or daughter you know needs to go on to the next level uh, even in my own experience we really thought my son would be better off staying at you know a more recreational level but other people on his team wanted to move up and my son liked the other players right so we got convinced to go and the coach ended up just being really bad um and but we yet we stayed and I, to this day i'm still shaking my head because sure enough freshman year in um high school my son said i'm done with soccer i can't play it anymore and we're we're convinced it was because of that coach that we paid because we weren't strong enough to say no let's let's get out you know it was the peer network all of our friends all their kids were in it so why not keep going my advice to other people is, you know your kid, are they having fun? Yes, they're having fun with their friends, but do they need to be in that environment? Um, would they be better off playing different sports and then seeing their friends outside of that? But I mean, I can tell you from a parent's perspective, oftentimes parents use it as their social outlet. You know, I'm having withdrawals right now, my son's you know, a senior well, with COVID, everything stopped. So now we don't get to see the parents of our kids' teammates. And we don't get to, you know, have that camaraderie, our social network. So parents often use their kids for the social network too. <laughs> Lisa, it's been a it's been a fascinating conversation. There's a lot more that we could we could cover. Certainly, I have a lot of follow up questions, and I guess we'll 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 need to to schedule another time to to talk a little bit more about these these issues. But before before we let you go, we'd like to ask you for any recommendations that that you might have for us and our listeners. Yes, for anyone interested in getting involved in the sport industry. There's three things I always say you need is one is education. You need to be aware of the terms, the background, the landscape, the understanding of how money is made, what to, how money is distributed, uh, who the stakeholders are. So that's the education part of it. Then there's the experience. You need to get those, you know, internships. You need to get that hands-on experience uh, through volunteering um, game day night staff, you know, even if you have 
a day job, you can always get some experience working uh, events. And then the final one is the networking. Um, it's still a lot about who you know, and um, there's you know thousands of people, thousand people applying for jobs, and to get in, uh, you need the knowledge, the experience, and then a little help to get your resume seen, or at least uh, written well enough that it'll pass through the machines, you know, the, the AI that's out there now. So understanding all of that uh, really, really helps. Um, there's that another area that we haven't talked yet about is esports. Um, many people aren't sure if that's a real sport or not, but there are jobs in that area now, and it's very similar to traditional sports. So you have sponsors, you have a team, you have to take care of them, you have a schedule, you have their nutrition and their workout. Um, so every job that's in a traditional sports team and league is now replicated in esports. For recommendations, I'll just summarize is that uh, I encourage you to look at um, a formal education program, whether it's, you know, we offer a short term online certificate program or a, a full degree. Try to get as much experience as you can. And that's also why many people join a formal education program because they can help you get in and then also build your, your network by listening to podcasts and getting involved in conferences like the same conference. Are there any podcasts in particular that you'd, you'd recommend? Well, Front Office Sports, Sportico, Sports Business Journal, those are all really good resources for you to keep up with what's happening in the industry. Uh, the Clubhouse is a new kind of trending social media platform where you can go in and listen to a lot of you know sports people talk about what's happening in the industry. Um, you know, there's there's just so many different options now for people to learn and engage in the sports industry. Thank you, Jonathan. Anything you'd like to recommend this week? I have two recommendations this week. The first is an article in the Nikkei Asia Review, and you know that I've, I guess it's just called Nikkei Asia now. Um, I like to keep up with it because they they do a very good rundown of, uh, of Asia generally. But because Tokyo is hosting the 2020 Olympics, um, it's it's especially, well, 2020, now 2021 Olympics. Uh, I, like, I like getting my Olympics coverage from Nikkei as well. So there's a recent article um, from the new Olympics chief, uh, who says that the games, uh, they're still planning on having spectators, um, at the games as much as they can. So, uh, if you're interested in keeping pace with what's going on there, uh, Nikkei has great coverage of the upcoming Olympics. Um, the second recommendation I have is for the, uh, the white powder snow in Park City, Utah. So I went snowboarding this past weekend with a friend of mine, and I, I have spent a lot of time in Utah, but I have never gone skiing or snowboarding. And I'm not a skier or a snowboarder. So this was my first foray. And uh, he took me on a couple of blues and then on a black diamond or two. And so I have plenty of bumps and bruises uh, two days later. But I, I heartily recommend the the powder in Utah. They, they recommend it or they call it as the best snow on earth, right? And so they're trying to host the uh, another Winter Olympics coming up, I think, around 2030. So if you happen to be uh, interested in uh, in that or even just trying, a, you know, trying a new sport, I'm, I'll be 40 this year. So, uh, you know, trying a new sport at, at this age in, in your life, uh, I recommend taking some risks and uh, and weathering some bumps and bruises for for the new experience. 
So Fred, what about you? Yeah, so I'd like to recommend a movie that I saw last night. Um, it, it It's one of these choices you make on Netflix that seems like one thing when you select it and then turns out to be something completely different. This uh, This particular movie is called The Death of Stalin, and I was expecting some heavy historic drama. As it turns out, it's a comedy, dark humor, obviously, but the end result it was, was pretty interesting. They do a pretty good job of explaining what happened when, when, when Stalin died, which was a very obviously very momentous event, really shaped the, the direction that the Soviet Union took going forward. But they managed to do it in a, in a different format. And, and it's, it's legitimately funny. They have some really good actors. I mean, some, some real, real talent, um, Steve Buscemi, uh, Michael Palin, the guy from Arrested Development, the name escapes me right now. But so, so you know, they have some, some real, real heavyweights there. But at the same time, the story is is true to to the historical narrative. It achieves uh, that that rare feat of of being both historically informative and uh, and, and funny for anyone who has any interest in Russian Soviet uh, world history and and wants to use this as a jumping off point to maybe probe the issues more deeply. This I would recommend it. And just to give you an idea of how well they they do this. Um, as I was watching, I was, you know, as Lisa was saying, you know, I'm not exactly in, the, you know, a member of the of the current generation, but still do suffer a little bit from that um, inability to focus on one screen at a time. So I was doing a little bit of of research. If anyone knows anything about Stalin and that historical period, the head of the KGB. Actually, I don't even know if it's formally the head of the KGB, but let's just, let's just say the guy who was in charge of his of security, this guy called uh, Laurenti Beria, um, really bad piece of work. And one of the things that I read online was that, I mean, he, in addition to all the other atrocities that he committed, he was uh, a sexual predator. And one of the the hallmarks of, of his actions was that he would give his victims or he would have his assistants give his victims flowers. And that was supposed to represent some form of consent, their acceptance of the flowers. And in this movie, they actually, there's a, there's a couple of points where, where they, where they pick up on that and then they incorporate it into the script. So whoever, whoever came up with the script really paid a lot of attention to, to the historical details, um, as I was able to, to confirm through, uh, Wikipedia and other infallible sources. So anyway, Death of Stalin, that's um, that's my recommendation. And with that, uh, Lisa, thank you so much for, for coming on. Really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Great to have a conversation about sports. I think this might be the first time that we really focused on on sports-related topics on the podcast, and that's, and that's great. Thank you. It was great to be here, and let me know if I can help with anything else. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.